Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Rusty Quill presents... Hey everyone, Alexi Talander here. I just wanted to take a moment to talk to you about Radio Public. It's a free podcast listening app like Podcast Addict, Podbean, or any of the others you use to get your podcasts fixed, but with one big difference. They're actually paying podcasts per each episode listened to. Not a lot, but cumulatively, it all adds up. So I'm asking a favor of you. Just give Radio Public a try. I've been using it, and it works just as good as any other podcast app I've used before. Plus, you get this warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that while you're listening to your favorite podcast that you can't get enough of, (coughs) like Ostium, (coughs) you're also supporting them. So again, I'm just asking this one favor. Give Radio Public a try. Thanks. Now, let's get this episode started. The initial goal of the Voyager program was to study the outer planets of the solar system. Originally conceived in the late 1960s as part of the Mariner program, the two robot probes were moved into their own separate program, Mariner Jupiter-Saturn, which was later renamed Voyager. Due to an ideal planetary alignment of Jupiter-Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, Voyager 1 launched on September 5, 1977. Voyager 2 launched on August 20th of the same year. 
Yeah, you heard that right. Voyager 2 launched before Voyager 1. And before you ask why they did that or didn't just switch the names around, I have an answer for you. Voyager 2 had a longer, more circular planned trajectory to Voyager 1, and it was going to take longer to get to Jupiter and Saturn. Voyager 1 would reach these Jovian giants first, therefore receive the honorary title of number one. Originally, both probes were planned to explore the two largest planets in our solar system in detail. Voyager 1 reached and began photographing Jupiter in January of 1979. It encountered Saturn in November 1980. After a brief flyby with the moon of Titan, Voyager 1 continued on its way to the distant edge of the heliosphere. Voyager 2 made its closest approach to Saturn on August 26, 1981. Because of its particular trajectory, Voyager 2 was able to make flybys of Uranus in January 1986 and Neptune in August of 1989. Voyager 2 then began its own journey headed beyond the heliosphere. In 2013, Voyager 1 passed beyond the boundaries of our solar system. In 300 years, it will reach the Oort cloud, taking 30,000 years to pass through it. In roughly 40,000 years, it will pass within 1.6 light years of the star Gliese 445. In 2020, Voyager 2 passed beyond the boundaries of our solar system. In about 40,000 years, it will pass within 1.7 light years of the star Ross 248. If undisturbed for 296,000 years, it will pass within 4.3 light years of the star Sirius. On each of these space probes is a gold-plated audio-visual disc containing information about Earth, its people, cultures, and history, in case either of these probes should one day encounter an advanced intelligent alien life form. I stand before door 42 with some trepidation, but then on the other side of this door should be the answer to life, the universe, and everything, right? Monica is by my side, and we're ready to go in, through another door and into another world. I'm somewhat anxious because without the internet, I feel completely disconnected from my own world, the planet I used to call home. Sounds insane to say it like that, but from where I'm standing, I can see that swirling blackness encompassing ostium and know confidently that there's nothing earthly about it. And I very much haven't forgotten about those devastating catastrophes wreaking death and havoc on the planet. I've also done my best to ignore and disbelieve in the minute possibility that ostium caused each of those catastrophes and the logical extrapolation that would be if, a big if, the biggest of ifs. If opening doors in time and space caused those terrible things to happen on my world, I would be more responsible. And if that was somehow, horrifically, the case, what has opening more doors done? I'm not going to talk to Monica about this, at least not yet anyway. It all feels too fragmented and random, and she'd probably just call me a conspiracy nut against Ostium, 
or just making a big deal out of nothing. But Ebola, earthquakes, tsunamis, and giant radioactive clouds of death are far from nothing. Are we going to wait here all day, or are you going to open the damn thing? I suck in a breath, and we step through. My eyes are closed. There's a humming sound and an airy sound, like air conditioning doing its job. Everything feels mechanical, artificial. I open my eyes. My first thought is we're in another space station. But it couldn't be Mars again, could it? A different time, maybe? But as my eyes take in more details, I realize this is different. No, this is much cooler. We're on a spaceship. Cue the 2001 theme. Monica walks ahead and over to the large window in the side of the ship, looking out at deep space. It's wide enough for both of us to stand side by side, and I join her. Touching my hand to the glass, or perspex, or whatever material it is, future plastic for all I know, I cut my hands around the outside of my face to block out the lighting in the hallway. Outside, it's all black. But one by one, and then by the hundreds and thousands and beyond, the stars make themselves known in the verse. My eyes start telescoping around, trying to take in as much detail from this view as possible. I make a big circumference with my optical receptors, and when I get to the six o'clock position, I see something that causes my jaw to fall open. It's a massive planet. Of course, from my context, a small moon would seem massive, with a vertical and horizontal set of rings rotating around it, so sort of like Saturn times two. I can physically see those rings made of who knows what, rock, ice, space dust, satellites and orbiting mechanical parts, alien pods, could be anything, but it's magnificent and mesmerizing. The planet below is a swirling miasma of purples and blues and oranges mixing together like planet-encompassing taffy. Does that indicate it's a gaseous planet? Could there be anything living on it? An alien civilization? Do they have some rocky terra firma to exist on? Or do they reside in incredible floating fortresses and cities? <laughs> Cloud City, anyone? Perhaps beneath these mixing colors is a habitable atmosphere for these alien beings. Possibilities and complexities are endless. I want to take a scout ship or a survey vessel, if this spaceship has such a thing. But no, I don't have the time. The blackness is next to invisible, even looking through the window with all this space around us. But I can feel it. There. Far away and distant. But waiting. Waiting for me to weaken, to succumb, let it overpower. To begin its inevitable approach and onslaught. It's why I'll always have a limited time when I pass through a door in Ostium. Why I will never be able to fully explore the world on the other side as much as I want to. There's a literal ticking clock. Actually, no, sorry, that's not true. There's a metaphorical ticking clock when I pass through a door in Ostium, 
and only have so much time to enjoy the view and do what needs to be done. And if the blackness gets you, what then? Do you wink out of existence like one of these millions of stars? Are you disassembled one molecule, one atom at a time, flinging off electrons into the deep, dark cosmos? Who knows? Monica doesn't have a clue. I certainly don't. It's a zero-sum game, or is that a fait accompli, or neither, or both? The point is, the only way I'll ever know what the blackness will truly do to me is by letting it envelop me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. I've got to get moving. Find out what I can about the ship. Find the artifact and move on. The more I meditate on everything we're doing here, passing through doors and creating a bloated rift in time that probably shouldn't exist, no wonder there's never anybody here when we come through. The sheer energy dissipation to create this tear in space must be equivalent to a gravitational wave, which is only created when two black holes collide. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about a grande burrito buttload of energy. Trust me, it makes sense. I guess being on a spaceship millennia, or perhaps tens of millennia in the future, has delivered an ostium-level existential crisis upon my frail mortal coil. God, what am I even saying? Find the artifact. Got it. Monica's still glued to the window, and I can totally relate, but I grab her hand and drag her away, heading down the corridor toward I don't know what. The humming, with occasional beeps and squeaks from future spaceship tech, is the only noise that accompanies us. We reach the end and approach a metal door that whooshes open with that patented Star Trek sound. There's a small box-like room on the other side. Can it be what I think it is? Dare I dream? I drag Monica inside and turn around. The door whooshes closed. The look on her face isn't a happy one. Watch this. Computer, deck one, bridge. I wait for a friendly voice to reply, hopefully female, possibly male, perchance in English. Instead, there are a series of squawks. Then the turbo lift, or whatever distant future spaceship elevator this is, starts moving first sideways for some time and then ascending. The speed feels impressively fast, but the G-forces are under control and we don't lose our footing. We reach our destination, and with a whoosh, the door is open. I can barely contain my excitement as I step out onto the bridge of this possible galaxy-class starship. Does the outside look like the Enterprise NCC-1701D? Almost certainly and undeniably not, but there's always a chance. And regardless, here I am, standing on the main command center of a ship of the future that can travel through space. The beeps and squeaks and humming continue here. Before us is a giant oval window or screen showing us what's in front of the ship. I can't see any of the ship on the outside to give an idea of what it looks like. So either this is a camera view at the front of the ship or the bridge is located at the very bow. So many questions and there's no way to get outside and check. In space, no one can hear you. Wonder. What I can see from this oval view are stars and some distant planets. 
each with their own individuality, their own uniqueness and colors. It's gorgeous and mesmerizing. And I think I see a comet there, shooting by with its tail of ice and rocks stretching out behind it like a giant arrowhead. Incredible. There are around 20 to 30 stations, each with their own individual raised platforms, making their individual space clear. From each of these platforms extends a sleek white metal-looking tube-slash-stand, curving around and opening out into an oval shape that looks about the size of a 40-inch TV. It's all completely white, even the face of what I'm assuming to be a computer screen. Looks like a cross between stuff from the WALL-E movie and a product developed by Apple. It's really sleek and cool-looking. And that's it. No apparent buttons or toggles or switches. Looks like everything's touchscreen here, I assume. Of course, it could also be some cool telepathic mind meld thing between the spaceship computer and the crew. Your mind to my hard drive. But without a member of said crew, we can't know. And then I see something slumped over one of the stations, kind of hanging over it like a tossed piece of clothing or a blanket. Monica's eyes have been rubbing the bridge just like mine. And then she sees the unidentified form and starts running. I quickly follow. It's a big bridge, even by Trekkie standards, so it takes us a few seconds to reach it. Once there, it's obviously a body slung over the workstation console. We slowly walk around it, trying to recognize who it is, not wanting to touch or disturb it. Eventually, Monica crouches down and then curves herself to bend underneath the console and see the man's face. Private Tanaka. I don't see any blood, any obvious cause of death. I take a breath. Monica, we need to get going. She looks at me. The blackness is getting stronger, starting to overpower me. We don't have a ton of time. The artifact? Not here. Not on him. We need to take the turbo lift again. Well, thank fucking God for small favors. She leads the way to the turbo lift. The doors whoosh open and we step inside, letting them close behind us. I think about what to say, what to ask for. Where do we need to go on the ship? I close my eyes and try to spread my thoughts to encompass the entire ship, somehow. I don't really know how to describe it. It's weird, but it works. I feel it in one small spot on the ship, sort of like our ostium infrared maps, but with... Mm, touch thoughts, you know? Cargo Bay 42, I finally say. The Galactic Space Elevator, or whatever you want to call it. If I keep saying turbo lift, I might get Gene Roddenberry's foundation or trust coming after me. When it comes to a bunch of high-paid lawyers, I'm sure they'd be able to find me an ostium, even if ostium isn't attached to a specific point in space and time anymore. It begins moving down first at an impressive speed, then zipping to the left for some time, finally to the right for a few seconds and stopping. Again, even though we had to be moving at an incredible speed, neither Monica nor I are on the floor or even slightly shaken up, both perfectly still like we're on one of those horizontal escalators that seem to move you just that little bit faster at airports, though I'm not sure if the physics actually proves it. I swear I've had slow walkers not just match my pace but actually pass me when I'm on one of those things. Still beats walking. 
The door is open to a large hangar, as kind of expected. Is it in here? I give Monica a nod and step out. It's dimly lit. I ask the computer for lights, and suddenly the entire hangar is bathed in bright floodlights that are quite blinding at first. After some time for retinal recovery, I'm able to see what's in this cargo bay. Two strange-looking contraptions about 20 feet away, looking like a binary pile of scrap metal. There are pieces of metal sticking out at odd angles, some thick and short, others thin and long. Along the arms of metal are chunks of more metal that could be anything. Instrumentation, sensors, weapons. At the heart of each contraption is a big white-looking dish with a central node pointing out from it. <laughs> kind of looks like an old-school satellite dish from the 80s or something. I remember watching this cheesy horror movie as a kid called Terror Vision about some alien monster that was somehow summoned from space and was able to pass through the television screen and attack and kill people. I remember it mostly being a big brown slimy thing with tentacles, like a giant octopus. Anyway, the thing I remember most about it was outside the house of the family that was getting visited and murdered by this alien creature. There was this hella big-ass satellite dish on a swiveling box. They could control it with a cheap-looking giant remote control. Looked more like a giant remote for a radio-controlled car. And I think the idea was you could turn the satellite dish in any direction and get like a hundred or more channels from Russia or China or wherever. Turn it another and get channels from Europe and the UK. Not exactly how it works, but it was a crappy 80s horror movie after all. But the important detail from this random memory is the satellite dish. These look the same, about the same size and face. Oh, and there's that giant radio telescope at Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Again, these are much, much smaller. These are the thoughts running through my brain as I study these things. I can see from the look on Monica's face, she's wondering what the hell exactly I'm doing. Why am I taking so long? Just find the damn artifact and let's get the heck out of here. I get that. Really, I do. But there's something else going on here. Something that I'm not catching, and I don't have time to explain it to Monica. Hang on a sec. There's something... Holy shit. And then I have it. This is Voyager 1. Voyager 2. This stops Monica. She knows about the Voyager exploration program. Or at least she's heard about it in some shape or form. And then I launch into my spiel. You got the intro at the beginning of this recording. And here I am, somehow, standing before these two seemingly simple contraptions launched about 50 years ago that are the only inventions by humankind to have left the solar system and passed into interstellar space. At least in my lifetime. I know it's not over yet, but it doesn't seem too likely that there'll be a whole armada of either manned or unmanned probes shooting beyond the heliosphere and deep into outer space within the next 60 or 70 years. And that's when I realized the monumental precedent that is being set here. These two robotic probes have been found by someone or something. An alien being. An alien race. They've been traveling through the cosmos for who knows how long, and an intelligent extraterrestrial being found them and took them in to study, to learn about them. And in so doing, learn about the human race and planet Earth. And both of these probes is a golden disk containing a wealth of information about who we are. A committee was convened to decide what to put on the record, headed by one Carl Sagan. 
contains a variety of pieces of music, 115 images, and a collection of sounds from nature and our world. Greetings spoken in 55 ancient and modern languages, as well as some other human sounds like laughter and footsteps. There's also a message from then-President Jimmy Carter and UN Secretary Kurt Waldheim. These golden discs were placed just in case an intelligent alien race found them and wanted to know where these probes came from. And here's the actual proof that they've been found. To call it a historic, yes, a historic, never an historic moment, doesn't do it justice. It's one of those moments that you imagine and dream about. And here it is, in the flesh, so to speak. Simply incredible. And that's when the alarm bells, air raid sirens, and klaxons start going off. Whatever this spaceship uses for an emergency sound is now making itself known. From somewhere deep in the ship is the sound of wrenching and destruction. Something has gone terribly wrong. What? It's the blackness. We need to get the fuck out of here right now. I give Monica my combined no shit Sherlock and now I'm fucking terrified look. I drop to my knees, looking beneath one probe, then switching to the next. I find a tiny golden disc about the size of a silver dollar. Bingo. Then we charge for the turbo lift. Inside the door closes and the computer awaits direction and instruction, and I have no idea what to say. What hallway was it that had the ostium door? Didn't seem like any particularly important one, so... Monica is panicking right along with me, and she just yells at the ceiling. Take us to the fucking ostium door! Space elevator, or is it the space vader, starts moving. Where will it take us? We go a number of directions and then stop. The door whooshes open and there's the ostium door staring at us, patiently awaiting our return. We start running and about ten feet down the hallway, the artificial gravity of the spaceship fails. Blackness got to whatever part of the ship controlled it. I'm guessing the bridge is long gone. Now I'm as helpless as a toddler in water for the first time. I watch Monica and soon copy her. She looks for handholds on the ceiling, the walls, the floors, whatever piece of surface she can find to grab onto, and pulls herself along. It's not as fast as running, but she makes it look pretty close, like some skilled marine animal flitting along through the water with ease. She makes it look like no big deal, and I'm instantly both impressed and envious. I flail my way along behind her, and we make it through the ostium door. I don't bother looking back, not wanting to know how close the blackness actually is. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It feels great to be on solid ground and submitting to the awesome powers of gravity once again. We go through the motions, offering up our tiny golden sacrifice to the map table god, which it takes and consumes heartily and without question. 
After some food, it's time to crash. Another day, another door, another fucking body. One of these days, it's going to be Steve. I can almost feel it. I'll see his corpse displayed in some lavish way for my eyes only, I'm sure. Thanks to Ostium. And I'll have one of two reactions. Either I'll just completely lose my shit and collapse into a pile of leftover nothingness that doesn't want to live, or I won't give a damn. As the corpses keep piling up, I know it's pretty sick to admit, but I'm becoming... Not just numb, but acclimatized. It's becoming no biggie. And that's pretty fucked up. But I see it in Jake too, in his eyes, in Yord. Eventually, the body count's going to reach saturation. The squad will be extinguished, rendered fucking extinct. And if the bodies keep turning up, it's going to really fuck with me. Where the hell will they be coming from? Fuck knows. And if it's just one more, well, we'll know exactly who that is, won't we? And it'll all be for nothing. One big fucking waste of time and space. It was trippy seeing the Voyager probes. Both of them. I know a little about them. Did some recon on them for fun. I know Jake was losing his fucking mind overseeing them there on that spaceship. But he loses his fucking mind pretty easily in Ostium. With the crazy shit that's on offer here. Still, it was pretty trippy knowing what the universe can actually do. Getting those itty bitty pieces of metal and electronics way out there. Finding them a home with an alien race. Kinda tells you anything could happen. Sky's the fucking limit. And there's your tagline for the great town of Ostium. Put it on a bumper sticker. Slap it on a t-shirt. Hell, if we were still connected with the real world, I'd mosey on down to the road to that old Ostium sign. Paint the fucking endearment on it myself. Sky's the fucking limit. This episode was written and produced by Alexi Talander. The voice of Jake is performed by Chris Fletcher. The voice of Monica is performed by Georgia McKenzie. All the music was composed by Chris Fletcher. Graphic design and artwork is done by Sarah Warren. Austin will continue to be ad-free thanks to our great and wonderful patrons who support the show through our website at ostium.com support or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ostiumpodcast. Why not consider becoming a supporter of our show? For as little as $2 a month, you can get access to exclusive mini-episodes, including something called The Ostium Files. It's a series playing around with the idea of what if you could go through an Ostium door to the time and place of your choosing? Where would you go? There are also lots of other rewards like episode transcripts with illustrations, music, and special early access to new episodes of Ostium. Plus, if we hit our support goals, you'll get access to Ostium Season 3 that much sooner. And if we hit our top goal, Season 3 will start right after Season 2, without any break. So check it out at patreon.com slash ostiumpodcast. Whatever you can spare will be greatly appreciated and means so much to us. You can also support Ostium by leaving us a review on the podcast listening app of your choice, or simply by telling your friends, 
or mentioning how much you enjoy this podcast on social media. And of course, there's also our merchandise store with a whole variety of goodies like mugs, t-shirts, and even fancy pillowcases, all at ostiumpodcast.com store. Also, if you're looking for a good book to read, Ostium Book One Population Zero is out now on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and a fancy full-color illustrated edition. This week's podcast recommendation is Victoriosity, a detective comedy drama set in even greater London in the year 1887. In this vast metropolis, Inspector Archibald Fleet and journalist Clara Entwistle investigate a murder, only to find themselves at the center of a conspiracy of impossible proportions. I'm not a huge fan of comedic podcasts because I like my stories more serious and gripping, but Victoriosity managed to do both incredibly well. There's the non-stop dry British humor that has me constantly laughing out loud, along with the cool steampunkish world of this alternate London where technology has gone in some very interesting directions. Plus, you get to hear from Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. What's not to like? Finally, thanks for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be any point in doing this podcast. So thank you, and see you in two weeks with episode 15, Columbia. <laughs>